This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. We're going to be in the same passage we were last week, so if it sounds familiar, uh, you were paying attention. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Uh, last week, we were able to work through verses 15 through 16. Today we'll focus on verses 17 through 21. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of God's Word that's your own, or maybe you don't have a Bible app on your phone, there are in the back of the seats pouches that have Bibles in them. So please feel free to not only use those Bibles, but if you need a Bible, take it with you as a gift from Trinity. It would thrill us for you to take that and to use it. Galatians chapter 2. Verses 15 through 21. In many ways, these two paragraphs serve as the conclusion of the introductory section. And Paul introduces here themes that he's going to return to in the latter part of this letter. So there are things here that you will hear again in the next few months as we continue working our way through this letter. But for this morning, I ask you to follow with me as I read chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May the Lord be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. A few years ago, NASA posted a job opening that caught a lot of attention because it was very unique. NASA began looking for a planetary protection officer. Planetary protection officer. Now you may rightly ask, what in the world does a planetary protection officer do? Well, they do this. The planetary protection officer is responsible to be sure that the rockets and satellites that go into space are not carrying dangerous microbes from Earth that could potentially harm any planet they might land upon. Furthermore, they are responsible to inspect any craft that returns to be sure that it's not carrying anything that could be harmful to humanity. It's quite a job. In fact, to, to, be, to fill this position, you would have to have expertise in physics, biology, chemistry, mathematics, 
and engineering. That's why NASA was surprised when they received a handwritten application from Jack Davis. Because Jack is nine years old. But Jack did a very good job explaining why he should serve as the planetary protection officer. Jack wrote, I may be nine, but I think I am a good fit for the job. I don't like the confidence. One of the reasons is my sister says I am an alien. Also, I have seen almost all the space movies and alien movies I can see. I'm young. But I think I can learn to think like an alien. Well, unfortunately, Jack did not get the job. But he did receive a handwritten note from the chief of NASA who explained, Dear Jack, we are always looking for bright future scientists and engineers to help us. So I hope you will study hard and do well in school. We hope to see you here at NASA one of these days. That's great. Now, the reason I tell that story of Jack and his desire to serve as the planetary protection officer is because it comes to the issue of qualifications. To serve in such a role, one has to have the right qualifications. And qualifications are the very issue that Paul is dealing with here in the book of Galatians. Specifically, what qualifies a person to be part of the people of God? Now, that's no small issue. To be part of the people of God is to be saved. For to be saved is to be part of the people of God. So the question that Paul is wrestling with here is the issue of how is one saved? Now there were a group of false teachers that had entered into the church at Galatia. And at first their teaching resonated with the believers there. That would resonate with us. Do you have to believe in Jesus to be part of the people of God? Yes, they would say. Are you saved by God's grace? Yes, they would say. But, and here's where the problem comes. To be qualified for the people of God, you must not only believe and accept God's grace, you must also submit to the traditions of the Jewish people, namely circumcision and the dietary laws. Do those things. Grace plus those things, and you are part of God's people, to which Paul writes back with a resounding no. That is not the gospel. Now, this is a battle that had been ongoing because prior to the passage I read, Peter had engaged in eating with Gentile Christians in the city of Antioch. That was a great thing. Because remember, Peter grew up Jewish. In fact, that's why Paul writes in verse 18, We ourselves are Jews. He's talking about him and Peter. He's saying, we're Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. And the fact, Peter, that you are eating with Gentile brothers and sisters, enjoying some great firehouse barbecue together, praise God it's good. <laughs> And then Jewish teachers from Jerusalem showed up. And Peter all of a sudden got cold feet. I can't do this. They'll think I'm not saved. They'll think I'm not a part of the people of God. And so Paul confronts Peter and the, the content of his confrontation is listed here in front of us. Paul confronts Peter and in doing so reminds us that the life we now live in Jesus is one of community. And it's a community that is defined by the fact that we are justified by God's grace. That's the bottom line glue that holds us together. And that's what 
Paul emphasizes in verses 15 and 16. We're not justified by works of the law. You and I are not made right by following the Torah or any list of man-made rules. We are justified by faith because of God's grace. And now he continues his theme in verses 17 through 19. He says the life we live, the life we live in community is to be lived Godward. That means focused upon God through Christ. That means that God becomes the target, not our own acts of righteousness, not our own works, but what God has done in Jesus. Now, verse 17 begins to address again the immediate issue of table fellowship. And he says in verse 17, If in our endeavor to be justified, that's curious language. The word endeavor means to work, doesn't it? If we work, if we strive to be justified in Christ. But doesn't working to be justified go contrary to everything that Paul said in verse 16? Furthermore, look what he says in verse 21. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, Paul is not contradicting himself right here. When he says, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, he's echoing the very same thought that he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, he's saying that our faith is not just a belief, it's impacts and shows how we live. So in other words, as we seek to live as those justified in Christ, as we seek to be righteous as we are in Christ, are we found to be sinners? Now, here's the logic of what he's saying. We are seeking to live righteously because we are saved. And if living righteously means we eat with Gentile believers, that can't be a sin. Because Jesus is not going to lead us into sin. We know that. Therefore, eating with Gentile sinners, is, or Christians, is not a sin. Christ does not lead us to sin. So to say that it's wrong for Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to eat together is absurd. That's why he says, certainly not. And then in verse 18, he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if I go back and I begin living according to the Torah, I'm just, proving my, I'm just proving I'm a sinner. Because I'm doing the things that Jesus said to do, and the Torah is saying not to do it. When Christ died, things were changed on a cosmic scale. In fact, the language that Paul uses there for if I rebuild what I tore down, it's a reference to the tearing down of the... the the barrier between Jewish believers and Christian believers. In the temple courtyard, there was a wall that stood about two to two and a half feet tall that separated the Gentile court from the Jewish court. Gentiles that came in could go no further. They could not gain access to God. And what Paul is saying is that in Christ, that has been torn down. Why rebuild it? If I rebuild it, I'm just showing myself to be a sinner because I'm doing the things the law says not to do. Think of it like this. While we have not struggled with the issue of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians eating together, 
the church in the United States still struggles with the issue of segregation. Not formally, but really becoming integrated to reflect one body. Strides have been made, but there's still a lot of work to do. Seventy years ago in April, a momentous occasion took place in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Billy Graham Crusade there. 1953, he's preaching at, at the baseball field in downtown Chattanooga. And as he's getting ready to preach, as he steps up on the platform, or, or prior to it beginning, he notices that there's still a rope that has been placed there in Memorial Field separating whites and blacks. Billy Graham goes and he gets one of the ushers and he says, I need you to take down that rope. We need to sit together, be a part of the body of Christ as a whole. The usher actually said, no. I will not do that. So Billy Graham himself came down from the stage and took the rope up to say we are one people. So the idea Paul's saying is why would we put that rope, rope back up? If we're looking for the, the Torah to justify us, we're looking in the wrong place. That's why he says in verse eight, uh, 19, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might be alive to God. In other words, we cannot look back to the law to prove our righteousness because it's only going to point out where we are sinners in need of a Savior. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Invoking the Torah to solidify your status as righteous is like inviting the chief of police to help you bury the bodies of the people you just murdered. That's not what the Torah does. It points out sin. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. Now that's strong language. How did Paul die to the law so it's no longer controlling his life through the law? It goes back to the purpose of the law. Now these are themes that Paul's going to come back to time and time again in the book of Galatians. Four ways that he points out in the book of Galatians that he has died to the law. First, the law pronounced Jesus accursed. You'll see this in Galatians 3.13. So we'll be coming to it in the future. That's important because when Jesus died and was cursed by the law, it was cursed for us. Because guess who the lawbreakers are? Us. And so he says when Jesus died, accursed by the law, he was taking our curse. Furthermore, the law was temporary because it pointed to Jesus who's moved us past the law. The law points us to our need for a Savior. And it does that because the law was never intended to save. It was to be like an x-ray or an MRI of the soul that says, this is the problem. For example, it's so easy for us to justify things by saying, well, that's just the way I am. So when it comes to maybe coveting, of saying, man, my neighbor's got this, this boat, I would love to have that boat. We can justify it by saying, well, that's just the way I am. So it, it can't be wrong. But the law says, thou shall not covet. It's pointing out our sin. It can't save us because it points us to the Savior who can save us from our sin. So Paul says that because I have been united with Christ, I have died to the law. The law can only condemn. It cannot give life because it is not intended to. We cannot be justified by works of the law, whether it be the Old Testament system as recorded in the Bible or our own works of righteousness. Jesus has taken the penalty of the law for us. Stories told of a duck hunter and a friend who were in southeastern Georgia hunting. 
as they were out hunting, they noticed and, and heard some crackling sounds, noticed smoke in the distance, and became very aware that a wildfire was moving toward them. The hunter soon realized that he and his friend could not outrun this wildfire. So he stopped his friend and he started looking through his, his backpack and he found some matches and he set a circle around them on fire and burned out a large enough circle for both of them to stand in. It wasn't long before the wildfire came and caught up with them. They hunkered down as close as they could to the ground and covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs. And an amazing thing happened. The fire passed over them. It would not burn what had already been burnt. Christ is our burned out spot, if you were. He has taken the curse of the law. He has fulfilled the law. So when the law comes and it offers us no salvation and just points out that we are sinners, we stand in Christ. That's why Paul moves to verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm standing in Him as the fulfillment of the law. And that's why the latter part, the last part of the life we live is defined by our union with Jesus. Perhaps the best known verses in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are alive to God because we have died with Christ. And by faith, we are united with what Jesus did on the cross and by his resurrection. Now, being united with Christ is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But it's that very thing that is symbolized in baptism. That when a person is baptized, they are giving public confession that they are identifying with Jesus. And just as Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, because they are united with Jesus, they are buried and then they are brought up from the dead. That's why Paul can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is the Holy Spirit. Sharing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus is what defines our lives. That's who we are. We live in an age where identity is a buzzword. There's so many things that try to force us into saying, this is who you are. It could be work. It's so easy for us to define ourselves by our work. It could be by our desires. This is who we are. I desire it, so this is who I am. But for the believer, we are defined by nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus. Scotty Scheffler is a name that most golfers are familiar with. Right now, he's the number one ranked golfer in the world. In February of 2022, he began his third full season as a professional golfer. And he was ranked 15th in the world, which is not bad. But that year... On Sunday, April the 10th, he won the Masters, one of the most prestigious golf tournaments in the world. In the press conference after his victory, as he is wearing his new green jacket, he was asked by a reporter, Scotty, how do you balance your desire to compete without letting it define who you are as a person? This is the answer that Scotty Scheffler gave. The reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. My wife Meredith told me this morning 
If you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. All I'm trying to do is glorify God. And that's why I'm here. And identity in Christ frees us from the incredible burden of having to live up to expectations and feeling like we have failed. The starting point is asking, have we died with Christ? That's a daily thing. When Paul says here, I have been crucified, it's an ongoing, it's something with ongoing effects. I die daily to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, put it like this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Are we willing to die daily to Christ? Not just a one-time event as symbolized by baptism, but keeping in mind that I'm His. And that's why Paul can go on to say, just as I've shared in His death, it is Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith. Does faith characterize your life? To trust the Lord that no matter what circumstances, I am going to trust Him and live by faith to let Jesus define who I am and that my successes and failures, the highs and the lows, in the end do not take one thing away from whom I am in Christ. It can be a lot to ask. That's why it's important to read what Paul wrote at the end of verse 20. Who is this Son of God that we trust in? The one who loved us and gave himself for us. You must keep in mind the amazing nature of that statement. The gods in the time of Paul did not love creation. The deities of Paul's time were to be feared and placated. They weren't spoken of as loving or being loved. But our God, our Jesus, loves us. The one that you are trusting in is the one who loves you. The one you are trusting in is the one who will walk with you. The one you are trusting is the one who has said, you are mine by faith and grace. It's a hard burden to live feeling like you have to measure up. One of the memories that's with me is my sophomore year in high school when I tried out for the McMinn County Cherokees basketball team. Two days in the late summer, everybody who was interested in trying out, there had to be over 50 guys there. Two days played, went through drills under the watchful eye of the coach and his assistants. After the second day was school began, the way you would know if you made the team or not is that there would be a, a written note listing the people who made the team, varsity and junior varsity, literally taped to the locker room door. It was quite a scene after school. Gather around to look. Some of my friends didn't make it. Went away sad. I went away reminded of God's grace because I was on the list. But some excited, some dejected. Isn't it good to know that God is not making a list you have to try out for? That by His grace, 
You've made the team. (laughs) You're a part of the people of God by His grace. That's the good news of the gospel. Are we worthy? No. (laughs) But it is Jesus who is. And that's why Paul says, the life I live, I will live by faith in Him. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me this morning. If you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you would like to know more about what it means to follow Him, you can come forward as we sing a final hymn of worship. I'll be at the front and be glad to talk with you. Or I'll be hanging around the front following the service. And if after the service you would like to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I'd be glad to be here and to do just that very thing. And believer, this may be one of those mornings being mindful that Our life is to be lived for the glory of God. We've died to self. That in the end, it's not about us. It's really about Him. And right now, the devil may be beating you up over failures. Don't let him. Our victory is indeed in Christ. He is our peace and our righteousness. Lean into Him. Father, help us. Help us to be able to say with confidence what Paul wrote, that we have been crucified with Christ, so it is now no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. And help us, O Lord, that our lives will be characterized by faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.